Well, good day, folks, and welcome to an FS Club webinar on something I think we all care about, the energy industry. And we're here today with a dear friend of mine over many years and a true expert in this field, Liz Bosley, who is the CEO of Consilience, or also SEAG, as you'll see here, but Consilience. Now, I've had the pleasure of knowing Liz for nearly 20 years, I think, and have always admired her clarity of thinking in the field of oil and energy. And Liz, uh, although she's going to be talking to you today about oil is here to stay and don't stop hedging it, uh, is also simultaneously a committed environmentalist. She led a, a package of recommendations that the City of London Corporation brought to Copenhagen in 2009, which included areas uh, such as uh, oil and energy reduction, but also forestry and also uh, one of our favorites, policy performance bonds. Um, but she's a hard-nosed woman uh, with a hard-nosed view, and I think you'll appreciate it today. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Mainelli. I am one of the directors of Zien, and I can only introduce uh, these webinars thanks to the tolerance, generosity, and wide-ranging interests of our many and varied sponsors. And if you'd like to become a sponsor, uh, please do contact us. But meanwhile, I think that I, all of our sponsors would agree that what's happening in the energy markets, particularly in the oil markets, is of great importance to anybody uh, looking at the economics of the, their nation or the economics of their business. Now, the format today is well known to FS Club aficionados. I think I can call you that. Uh, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible and hand over to our expert. Uh, Liz will be speaking for approximately 20 minutes and then we'll have approximately 20 minutes of questions and answers. And Liz is well worth questioning because she's got views, deep, straightforward views on many of the topics that she'll be covering. Um, I might add three points of housekeeping. Yes, the slides uh, will be available. In fact, I believe are already available if you look in the uh, chat area. Secondly, uh, this is being recorded and the recording will be posted in about two working days, so uh, probably about Thursday afternoon. Uh, and fourthly, how do you participate in the Q&A? You simply type your questions into the chat area facility and I will feed them into a conversation with Liz. All of your questions and comments with your email attached will be sent to Liz. So if you don't get time to answer them, uh, she will also see them. Uh, if you want to congratulate her on a fantastic and interesting presentation, I'm pre-staging here, uh, you may do that as well. Uh, but it, it's fairly straightforward in that regard. And finally, and I know I don't normally need to say this to FS Club members because they're very fast on the buzzer, Liz, but Liz has two very interesting poll questions for you. And so be alert and be ready for those. And so with, uh, without further ado, Liz, the floor is very much yours. Hello there. Hi. Um, <clears throat> October is always a very busy month for me because people are getting ready, doing their budgets for next year trying to work out what the oil price is going to be and trying to work out how much they should be hedging. So typically, October's a busy month anyway. This year it's particularly busy because we're getting so many mixed messages in the oil uh, field where I work. Um, next slide, please. What we're hearing um, if you're a, an oil, an E&P company, an oil investor, is that we don't like oil, we want to phase it out, it's done a lot of damage to the environment in the past, we need to go to low emissions, but there's another 2 billion people coming along by 2050, so we need to really get our act together and change 
the way we are supplying our energy needs. And the IEA, International Energy Agency, are saying that if we go to the net zero carbon greenhouse gas emissions scenario, then by 2050, we'll actually see a fall in demand for oil. Next slide. Against that, we are seeing the reaction to the war in Ukraine. All of a sudden, policymakers are saying to the oil and gas industry, produce more, produce it now. We're going to clear the way for you to get things on stream as fast as possible. We've got a new energy task force in the UK, uh, led by the, the lady who was um, the, the czar of vaccines. So she's bound to be good. Uh, and she's going to get us all producing more oil and gas um, sooner rather than later. The big boys in the USA are trying to bring more stuff on. And we're trying to get as much oil produced as possible, which requires investment at a time when we're being told that the broader international policy initiative is to get rid of fossil fuels. So why would anyone in their right mind invest in fossil fuels? Well, the first thing you have to do is take a view on if I invest today and bring an oil field on stream, what price am I going to be selling it at? What are these policy initiatives going to do? Or is the price going to continue to rise? So let's have a wee look at our first poll question. Next slide, please. <coughs> What's the oil price going to do over the next 20 years? Is it going to be pretty low? Because we've um, succeeded in our green agenda and we've phased out fossil fuels. Or are we going to discourage investment so much and the, oil, uh, the population is going to continue to grow so that we're going to run out of um, oil sooner rather than later and the price will go through the roof. We've already seen it um, knocking on back up for 140 earlier this year and it, it could very easily go there again if we get another supply disruption. Well, as, as I said, the uh, the audience here is very opinionated and over half have voted. So I'm just going to leave that open a, a few more seconds for them, if you don't mind. Um, okay. Well, uh, I found it interesting. This put in dollars of the day. <laughs> yeah, just to make it easier. Not that it really matters, given the broad um, ranges that we're talking about. Okay. But we've got an OPEC meeting tomorrow. Oh, let's see. Okay. Go. 50%. Okay. Okay, 14% more than 150. Okay, that's interesting. I wish I could say who's right and who's wrong, but if I could, um, I think uh, I'd be leading the country, not Liz Truss. Um, I don't have the first idea. Um, I've been working in the oil sector since 1978 as a trader, and I've never had any idea what the oil price is going to be. All I know is it's going to be volatile, and if you wish to invest, and your investment requires a certain oil price to give you a return and to repay your debt, then you better think about hedging. Now, if you're investing in oil and uh, exploration and production, 
or buying oil assets, you're probably going to need a bit of debt financing. Maybe you'll do it through equity, maybe you'll do it out of uh, existing cash flow, but by and large, probably there's going to be a bit of debt involved. <clears throat> and if you're taking out a loan for an oil asset, there, your lender is probably going to insist that you hedge a bit um, and make sure that you can service the debt and ultimately repay it. But how much should you hedge? And this is fascinating because it's one of the least well analysed pieces of the oil puzzle. How much should an oil and gas producer hedge out of their production stream? Now, this is something I've been working on for a very long time with a, a lot of different companies. And I'm observing that by and large, companies tend to be encouraged to overhedge by their financiers because their financiers don't go to the very time consuming um, business of looking at the production sharing contract and how much of the future revenue stream, even if you know with absolute certainty what the price is going to be, how much of that are you going to actually be allowed to keep? And that's what um, a new product that we launched earlier in the year looks at in considerable de detail. It's given the catchy title of Revenue Analysis, Apportionment and Hedging, RA for short, which I'm told by my uh, great niece is some sort of cool street word, but that, that was fortuitous, not intentional. So we are actually focusing on behalf of companies on actually how much do you need to hedge? Next slide, please. Now, you only want to hedge what you're allowed to keep year after tax revenue. And what you're allowed to keep depends on the licensing uh, regime and the production sharing regime in the country in which you're operating. And in most countries around the world, with a few exceptions, if you're investing in an oil and gas asset, you're probably going to be entering into some form of production sharing contract. And that is going to um, require you to pay royalty to the government or the national oil company, either in cash or in kind, it will probably permit you to recover your cost, your exploration and production costs, um, after you have paid your royalty. And how quickly and how much you're allowed to recover is contained within a ring fence, usually, which stops you from importing costs from other areas of the company to delay paying out to the government. So you are allowed to recover your costs, but how and when you recover them is um, something that is policed assiduously. Once you've recovered your costs, what's left over from that? Now the government takes a profit share, and that again may be in cash or in kind. And then there's probably a petroleum tax on top of that. And then on top of that, there's a corporate or company tax inside this cost ring fence. Um, and all of those calculations are made 
usually based on some form of official selling price. And a large part of my career has been negotiating with governments to make sure that the official selling price and the price at which companies uh, are actually selling is one and the same. Nine times out of 10, they're not. The oil company is arguing for a much lower uh, price because they may have taken the, the oil non-arms length into uh, their own refining system and the government may have an inflated idea of what the oil is worth. So you've got all these assumptions roiling around and they are under-analyzed. What this new product we've launched allows you to do is to look at what happens if you get any of those assumptions wrong. Uh, so you can play around with all sorts of what-if scenarios to see what the impact is if uh, profit share uh, doesn't click in until you reach a certain percentage um, of um, cost recovery, all sorts of assumptions like that, which are pretty detailed, pretty time consuming if you're doing it on Excel spreadsheets, but hopefully this product does it for you. Next slide, please. So how are your hedges taxed? Now, <clears throat> I talked a minute ago about if you're um, uh, developing an oil field, you're allowed to recover your exploration and development costs, and they are contained in a ring fence to make sure that it's only eligible costs that you recover. If your hedges that your financier has required you to take out are taxed differently outside the ring fence from your um, revenue from your physical sales inside the ring fence, then you have to take that into account as well. And that is not the sort of thing that a financier will advise an oil company to do. They will assume they're doing it for themselves. So if that is the case and you've got a different tax rate inside the ring fence from what you've got outside the ring fence, in other words, if your physical oil is taxed differently from your hedges, you better adjust for that disparity. And here we've got a wee table that does it for you. The calculation is what is the ratio of retained revenue inside the ring fence to retained revenue outside the ring fence? So next poll question. This one's a bit bit trickier, I think. We'll give we'll give give folks a minute on this one. Um, okay, you've got all the answers there. I, I've just given them to you, really. Um, uh, your oil field production is taxed at eighty percent of the sales price. Your hedges, gains, and losses are taxed or relieved at twenty five percent. So once you've worked out what your retained revenue stream is, how much? of your production stream should you be hedging given your one is taxed at 80 and the other is taxed at 25. Okay folks so uh, we've got it up here now. <clears throat> to be honest um, you've either probably done a, a quick mental calc as I did and kind of got you in range and are slightly off 
or it's out there. Nevertheless, Liz, I'm still delighted to say the audience votes quickly here, although we're still not quite up to half. Um, and I will just uh, quickly, uh, you know, uh, read that to those of you who can't see it again. Uh, your oil field production is taxed at 80% of the sales price. Your hedge gains are taxed and losses relieved at 25%. Those are your two numbers, 80% and 25%. What percentage of your future production stream should your debt financier be encouraging you to hedge? to ensure that your after-tax revenue is what you expect it to be when you open the hedges. Okay. Well, uh, I think we're ready to go here with that, and uh, we're going to close that poll and present the results. This time for, for change, we didn't quite get as many people to answer, but Liz, uh, tell them how well they did. You done good. 50% you done good. Um, the calculation is retained revenue inside the ring fence, so you're taxed at 80, you retain 20 to the ratio of retained revenue outside the ring fence. You're taxed at 25, so that's 75% um, you retain. It's 20 over 75, which is 27%. Now, that's a very simple calculation, but you would be amazed by how many companies don't do that calculation. And end up with hedges which seem to be totally divorced from the, the reality of their situation. Um, what we're finding now is that the new companies are coming into the sector, um, the buying assets that the majors are leaving behind, are looking at these sorts of issues more rigorously and not simply taking at face value what their financier is telling them to hedge, particularly when that financier is saying, oh, and incidentally, the hedges you carry out have to be done with our affiliate, uh, and we'll write you a nice swap policy, and we'll give you an ISDA that um, uh, covers those hedges for you. I think they're wising up, um, and the trading companies who are moving upstream, the Vitals, the Glencores, the Trafiguras, they know all about that, but what they're learning about, <coughs> excuse me, is things like profit share, cost recovery, um, the difference between the OSP and the sales price. This is not rocket science. It just requires a lot more time and effort than most companies are prepared to put into it. And I don't blame them because I actually built an Excel spreadsheet that did all this before we handed it over to the IT guys to make it all busy for, for clients. And it's a, a pain in the fundament to do all those calculations, but you've got to do it. I mean, this is a lot of money you're investing here in a very uncertain world, which is saying we need lots more oil now, but down the road, we don't want any at all. So. Pays your money, takes your choice, but if I were you, I'd have a safety net. <clears throat> well, thank you, Liz. I'm, I'm going to ask Peter just to go back to <clears throat> what I think is one of the core slides you have here, which is the one that's headed, you only want to hedge after tax revenue. And I think this is, uh, to me, one of the big things that you've been going on about for years. People overhedge, effectively. They're, they're doing it uh, because they're being sold product, and they sort of feel that they should be backing off quite a bit. And, and saying to people, wait a minute, wait a minute, I only need to hedge that. 
Um, why do you think that's the case? Why, you know, why is it that the industry pushes too much product down people's throats? I mean, it ought to be, it ought to be self-correcting. Mm. Um, it should be, um, but it isn't. And a lot of it is to do with um, silos of knowledge. Um, the typical exploration and production company um, of old was had a board of directors who were <coughs> probably explorers. Um, some of them were sort of financiers, but um, with interest in interest rates and uh, exchange rates. The black box of oil trading historically put them off and there was so many scandals and so much misunderstanding of what hedging is and misrepresentation to shareholders of what hedging was all about. The number of companies who surprised the shareholders um, with an outcome they weren't expecting and suffered the consequences um, is legion. Um, if you're an ENP company, um, the fiction that I've heard from a lot of um, boards of directors is come, uh, funds are investing in us because they want exposure to the oil price. So if we hedge the oil price, we're taking that exposure away from them and they won't invest in our shares. Um, there's lots of things I could say in response to that, um, but most of them are unrepeatable. Um, if you do a correlation between the oil price and an E&P company's share price, the correlation is actually pretty poor. Yeah. Companies invest in E&P companies for the quality of management, the quality of assets, and if they want exposure to the oil price, there are exchange traded funds out there that will give you direct access to the oil price. So I don't buy that for a minute, although boards of directors like to say it as a justification for inertia. Because getting involved in ISDA agreements, taking responsibility for price is a big ask of a, a group of board of directors. Because although you're hedging, and you're offsetting whatever, uh, if the oil price falls um, on the physical side, your hedge should be making money. If it goes the other way and your hedge loses money, there is always the, oh, well, you shouldn't have done that. You always get that. It's human nature. The mm. fact that you locked in certainty is not a lot of comfort. And the least comfortable thing about it is, even if you decide and tell your um, shareholders, I'm going to hedge, it's you who has to decide, today is the day, this is the price, this is the, the hedge I'm going to open. Yeah. And that is, not everybody's got the stomach for that. Yeah, it's interesting, it bears a lot of similarities in ways to the gold exploration market that I've been involved in for years. It's, uh, <laughs> it is the quality of management. There, there is a correlation, as you say, but it's not, mm -hmm. it's not rock solid one, it's a much longer mm -hmm. term, you know, what's the quality of the resource, what's the quality of the management, mm -hmm. you know, develop it. Yeah, very good. Uh, Hugh Purser has a question, and, and folks, please do send in questions, we've got time, because uh, Liz very kindly kept the time. Uh, this is a big one, I'm not too sure how to make this one short. 
uh, it's, it's really on point. One trend which may well continue is the pressure on investment institutions to ditch oil companies. Could we see some of the oil majors go private? And how would that affect their business models? Ooh. Um, go private, come off the stroke exchange, become private companies. Um, well, I think if they did that, they would meet the trading companies in the middle coming from the other direction. Um, why not? I mean, the the amount of money that you need to invest um, if you're a Shell or a BP is so huge. I'm not sure who the private investors would be that would um, want to own companies like that. Um, but why not? Um, national oil companies can do it. Um, there are those who are who still believe that oil has a role to play. Um, I'm sure there are sufficient of them out there who would want to invest in private ownership of oil companies if they believed the demand was going to be there. Um, and that really depends on what happens with nuclear as much as anything else. Um, so I guess you've got to ask yourself, do you feel lucky? Well, it's like you said, a lot of people, frankly, lack the guts to actually make a decision on something as big as that and fix it down for fear of looking stupid later. Mm -hmm. That kind of prep risk. And I thought you also had an extremely good point that a lot of people, you know, they, they like to look smart and say, well, have you hedged it? Because they're not 100% sure what hedging is, but it sounds good. And then the directors of the firm want to be able to say, yes, of course, we've hedged it. And so, they're, so they're going to do something, but it may not be um, thought through. Now, just to, there are obviously a lot of uh, different types of hedging and different sorts of prices. What are sort of the complexities there? Say, for example, I'm a, a North Sea ENP or I'm uh, drilling off of Malaysia. You know, what are the differences here? Uh, because it, there, there's the theoretical financial hedging, but then there's the practicality of real products. Mm, yeah. Um... You know, it's no different from running a, a corner sweet shop. Um, it's all about cash flow. If you're hedging, um, you're going to enter into an ISTA agreement. You are um, going to be getting margin calls. You are going to um, perhaps be entering into futures contracts where the call on cash can be as quick as the price fell $10 yesterday. I need variation margin by 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. A lot of companies don't have the wherewithal to do that. Um, and uh, those companies who are hedging and have worked out how much they actually need to hedge, nine times out of 10, if they could get an option strategy that did it, that is preferable because you don't get the same immediate call on cash that you do when you've got a a swap with a margin call from, um, you know, a, a large trading company or a bank, um, or from the futures exchange where the clearinghouse is pretty unforgiving um, if you exceed your credit lines. Now, option strategies. One of the unfortunate things about options for a, an ENP company is just buying outright puts um, can be very expensive. Particularly if you want to underwrite 
oil field revenue because then we're talking about time value. Um, if you make the commitment today, you may not get production for two or three years, and the field production profile may be five to ten years. If you try and hedge all of that, the time value of money you're paying for is going to be absolutely ruinous. You cannot do that. So you're probably talking about some sort of collar or three-way option uh, in order to defray those costs. But the best thing to do is decide how much can I live with being hedged and how much can I not live with? Because I showed you a table a couple of slides ago um, that said how much you need to hedge um, if your hedges are taxed differently from your physical. Now, one of the interesting things about that table is that if your hedges are being taxed more heavily than your physical sales, then that's saying you should be hedging two or three times what your physical production is. Anyone who does that really needs a straitjacket. If that is the situation you're in and you really need to hedge more than 100% of your physical sale, for God's sake, take your hedging to a different tax regime. Look at your project, because if you need to hedge that much, maybe it's not the best project. Maybe there's a better project out there. Maybe you should be revisiting your debt equity ratio. But anyone who's starting to believe they need to hedge 70%, 80%, 90%, stop and think, is this the right project? And am I structured, set up under my ISDA with my um, trading being done in the right entity to ensure that I'm not over hedging? A lot of companies go out of business because they take out hedges and then can't meet the margin calls. Enron, long-term capital management, you know, so many of them over the years will argue, oh, well, of course, our strategy was right, but we just couldn't meet the margin calls. Well, that's like a sweet shop owner saying, oh, well, I had a great shop, but I just couldn't pay my suppliers. You know, it's a fundamental part of the business. If you ain't got the cash, you don't have a seat at the table, so you're in the wrong business. Um, I don't know if that answers the question or if I've just been um, talking too much about that, but um, certainly that is one of the things I have discovered over the years when I have been advising companies about hedging and unfortunately appearing as an expert witness in court on the ones that went wrong. Um, and that's not just the EMP companies, it's also um, the refiners and the uh, net importing countries. I'm thinking particularly of Sri Lanka and how they came horribly unstuck by buying their um, uh, long hedges right at the top of the market in 2014 before it went over the edge of a cliff. Um, so uh, one of the things about option strategies is you really need to control what's happening. You really need um, a fist of iron controlling yes. your... Sorry, sorry, just, uh, I'm just trying to take another question, if we could. Uh, just, I'm going to give... Uh, I'm going to give... Oh, uh, right, okay, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, I'm going to give Hugh Purser another bite at this. He, he, I think he has a good point here. <coughs> He's pulled up uh, an article from November 2021, which I'll put in the post in just a minute, uh, saying that Occidental Petroleum in last November said, oh, we're going to stop hedging. Uh, you know, it's over. There's too much upside in oil. Um, one, do you know if they if they actually did that or, or continued to do it since February with the Ukraine-Russian conflict? And two, what do you think about that? Too much upside. So, yeah, the, that the, again, Michael, we're, we're not hedging. We're just not going to hedge. We're not going to hedge because we think the price is going to the moon. Is that kind yeah. of? That's that's what the article says. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Um. One of my colleagues at Consilience um left uh Occidental last year. Uh, Occidental Houston um, and mentioned that that view. Um, that was a very brief statement on their part. Um, if they have exposure to the oil price uh, and it falls, then that that is very brave. If they have sufficient cash reserves to ride it out, that's fine. Um, if they, they turn out to be wrong and the price falls, which it has um, and could fall further. <coughs> um, it's amazing how many companies survive without hedging. Um, and then we get another shock. I remember the first one that I really experienced, 79, just after I joined, we went to the moon um, because of the Iran-Iraq war. Then in 1986, we collapsed. Um, when we had uh, the netback war between Saudi Arabia and the, the non-OPEC countries. You know, if anyone thinks that they know which way the price is going, then jolly good luck to them. I don't. If you've got a view, back your view. Trading companies do it all the time, but they don't do it in physical oil. They do it in futures. They do it on swaps. Um, they don't do it in physicals. And anyone who does like an E&P company who's actually producing the stuff, if you think the price is going to the moon um, and don't hedge, then you are you're speculating. Um, mm. Because if the company is going out of business, if, the, if you're wrong, then I'm sorry, that's speculation in my book. Mm. Okay. Now, Clive Bullen has, I think, a very good point here. Um, <clears throat> Uh, isn't there huge pressure throughout society to reduce or stop using oil sooner rather than later, given the climate? Um, hence, isn't it very likely that long-term oil prices must must be down? Now, in your poll, um, you and I agreed uh, sort of in the chat room earlier, we, we didn't know which way it was going, but both of us anticipated it would either be at 10 to $15 a barrel in real terms and, or it would be over 150, but the mid-range we thought was the least likely. Um, what do you think about Clive's bit here? Is, is it going to be down? Um, logic dictates that it should be. Um, we've got the Sharm el-Sheikh COP27 coming up next month, and that's supposed to be where people start saying how they're going to deliver on the Glasgow Accords and the Paris Agreement, the, the net zero 2050 commitment, and the keeping the 
global warming target down to an increase of 1.5 uh, degrees. Now, I don't know how that conference is going to go, but I imagine it'll be a very uncomfortable one given the situation in Ukraine and Russia. And let's face it, only four countries matter. It's China, it's India, it's Russia, and it's the US. The rest of us, no matter what we do, if those guys don't get it together, then the rest of us are whistling in the wind. Are they going to get together um, in Sharm el-Sheikh in November and agree a way forward? Not a chance. Um, I would like to think that by 2050, we won't need oil anymore. Um, not going to happen. I mean, look at the minute Russia went into Ukraine, Boris Johnson's up in Aberdeen telling people that um, they're going to give full government support, a new licensing round, um, they were going to license the fields which were uh, where oil had already been discovered and could be brought on stream quickly. Uh, America, the big Exxons and the Chevrons are saying we're going to produce flat out, we're going to produce as much as we can to take the pressure uh, to stop us being blackmailed um, by Russia. Yet at the same time, Biden is saying, I'm overturning everything that Donald Trump said and we're right behind this green agenda. Um, I would love to see the oil price on its knees. I would love to see the end of oil and gas. Um, it's not going to happen. I just don't believe it's going to happen, largely because we're a pretty despicable species and we'll end up fighting with one another about uh, one thing or another. And we'll lie and we'll, uh, we'll want somebody else to make the, the, the cuts that are painful and expensive um, to uh, our, our energy supply. Um, and there are all those countries that need to start producing oil because, you know, there's still just under a billion people in the world that don't have electricity. Where is it going to come from? I would like to think it would come from renewables, but we're not there yet. And mm. I doubt we're going to be there in my lifetime. Um, so I think we need oil and gas for a while to come. And the more we say we don't need it, the less people are going to invest. And the less they invest, the higher the oil price is going to be. Mm. Then, of course, you get it being taxed out of the, uh, existence by um pressure groups who want to promote the green agenda and to raise revenue. And it's all these conflicting signals. Um, if you're an oil and gas investor, jolly good luck to you. Because um, I don't know what the answer is, but I've got a jolly good product that will help you work it out for yourself. Well, last last question um, uh, for me, really. the. It's a bit parochial and closer to home, but we've seen all this turmoil in the prices. We've also seen uh, a knock-on effect on green investors, renewable investors, who are sort of, just as we stand to make some money, suddenly you want to change the market again. So, you know, you want us to invest for 25 years, and now you're sort of saying, oh, well, uh, we, we don't really uh, think we can do that. We need more oil, more coal, et cetera. Um, 
We've also, of course, had this uh, fairly scary bit if you're a long-term investor, because what you're talking about hedging here is intimately entwined with taxation. And so a lot of this retroactive taxation discussion that we seem to think is sensible in the country uh, is frightening for long-term investment. Um, what do you think uh, is probably going to pan out in the UK over the next, say, three to five years? I, uh, I'm clearly trying to take in an election there. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of work in the, the green space, not just in the UK, but in Europe and other countries as well. And I became very disenchanted at the end of the Kyoto Protocol because I had spent a lot of time and energy getting people to invest in clean development mechanism projects. And one of the key parameters for the clean development uh, investment was that the project would not go ahead if it were not for the CERs, the certificates that were produced to reward those who made a green investment when a non-green investment would have made them more money. And then at the end of the Kyoto Protocol, Russia and the Ukraine start churning out certificates from the joint implementation programme, which cratered the price of the very certificates that were supposed to fill in the gap for the green investors. And it was one of the biggest frauds perpetrated on industry by governments. Can it happen again, which is really what you're asking me here. You've got people sit in good faith investing in green projects. Will they do it to us again? You bet. If it suits the political book, they will. So protect yourself, hedge when you can. And we have a saying in Scotland, when you sup with the devil, use a long spoon. Get the ladle out, chaps, because I wouldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. Oh, well, that's a, that's a, <laughs> that's something I, I suspect quite a few of us might agree with, although we're not allowed to. Liz, it's been really, really good to chat with you, um, which I think is there. And I must say, actually, one, one of the interesting things is that uh, Hugh Purser has actually put in another article on the real price of, uh, of Occidental's costless spoil hedge. So I'll stick that into the chat room now. Right. Um, which is interesting, and they actually break down the hedge there. You'll get that uh, in the questions in the Q&A that we're sending, but I'll put it in here now for people who'd like to uh, pick up on the thread that Hugh has developed. Um, and it's very clear that uh, you are, are really the expert on this, and we've been delighted that you've shared your advice, but I would encourage people to take away that bit. You know, It's not about hedging everything, but it is certainly about hedging, uh, and we're going to have to keep doing that. Folks, well, you've heard it from somebody I, I really admire. I'm thrilled that uh, that, that, that uh, Liz was uh, on, and if I may, uh, three rounds of thanks. First, as ever, uh, to, to our sponsors. Without you, uh, we definitely wouldn't be here. Uh, thank. Uh, secondly, thanks to the audience. This is a bit more technical than usual, but I was extremely uh, impressed uh, that 50% of the audience got the technical question right, which is, I think, a sign of, of, of FS Club members and their quick quickness on the mark there. So that was fantastic. Uh, but most of all, Liz, my thanks to you. You've, you've been around this industry and you bring uh, two things, uh, a bright, incisive and counter-cyclical thinking mind, but also a wealth of experience. Uh, and for that, we appreciate it. 
unfortunately. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your clients. Super. Okay. Take care, Liz, and we'll see you Thank soon. Thank you. Bye. Liz. Bye.